we ask you to bless this evening and guide and lead us and help us to see what you would want us to see through this chapter. And we thank you for all your love and your care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Job chapter 19 and 18, Bildad had basically condemned Job that he was evil and awful. Um, he said that Job was caught in a trap, uh, that God tore away Job's confidence and everything that he deserved, and that he deserved everything that, that he had lost because of his evilness. Uh, Bildad was not nice to Job in chapter 18. Uh, chapter 19 says, Then Job answered and said, How long will you vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times have you reproached me, and are not ashamed that you make yourselves estranged to me? And be it indeed that I have erred, and if it, and be it indeed that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you have magnified yourself against me and pled against me, against me my reproach, know now that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. Behold, I cry out of wrong but I am not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. He hath fenced me in my ways, and, he, and I cannot pass. He hath set darkness in, all, in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown of my head. He has destroyed me on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he removed like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me. He has counted me unto him as one of his enemies. His troops come together to rise up their way against me and camp around about my tabernacle. All right, so here is Job's answer to Bildad. First, he says, how long will you vex my soul? And this is kind of interesting, you know, cause grief or sorrow. Now, here he's just looking for somebody to be kind to him. And Bildad and the other guys are basically go, Job, we know you're guilty and therefore you deserve no kindness. And it's kind of an interesting thought process because when we're in suffering, we want somebody to be kind to us, but yet how often do we do the same thing when somebody needs comfort because of all they're going through and we try to judge them for what they're going, what, what, what's going on in their life. And that's what Job is saying. He goes, you guys are vexing me. You break me in pieces with words. He goes, you know, he's not saying literally that they've been pounding on him. <laughs> you know, but he says, your words are destroying me. You're breaking me into pieces. And all he's been looking for is just a little comfort. He's not even saying, you know, be, be kind to me and help me. He's just saying, would you speak kindly, kindly to me? Uh, and I've said this in various occasions. Nowhere have they ever said to Job, you know, Job, we are so sorry all this is happening to you. Let us give you, you know, four or five sheep, you know, and a, and a, and a, and a, and a ewe, and we'll get you, and a ram, and we'll get you a nice flock. You know, you can redevelop your flock. We'll give you a couple cows and a bull. Nothing, nothing in there at all. There's no comfort to him, no help. They are just, they had pity on him, but they're going, we're just going to attack and attack, and attack, and attack, until you finally admit that you deserve what you got. And this is what's going on, and, and Job answers them and continues it, these 10 times have you reproached me, and it's kind of interesting, 10 times. We do not have 10 speeches from these guys at this point in time, we count five. Now, this does not mean that there wasn't 10, maybe there were five others that were not recorded in the book, Maybe he's just rounding it up and say, you know, as we would say, you know, another half dozen or something when, uh, when something has happened. We don't know if this is kind of just a figure of speech. Maybe there's something not recorded. Maybe he's counting each one of their five speeches twice. <laughs> you know, you, you started here and you ended here, so therefore you, you've reproached me twice. We don't know, but he's basically saying, you keep attacking me, all right? Uh, and says, you are not ashamed that you make yourself strange to me or deal wrongly with me. He goes, you have no sympathy. You have no care. Uh, I keep telling you I haven't done anything worthy of all this. And you keep saying that I have done it. And he's chastising them, saying, where is your sympathy? Before, a couple of chapters back, he says, you are terrible counselors. I would never do anything like this. Even if you were guilty, I would have been kind to you, and they still have not stopped their attacks. 
And, and then he goes very interesting, and, if, and be it indeed that I have erred, if I really have erred this bad, then my error remains within myself. He goes, even if I had erred, it's between me and God, not you and me. And this is something that is very important for all people to understand. We stand or fall before God, not other people. And we need to be careful that we don't attack people, uh, even when they are sinning. And it really doesn't matter if they're sinning or not, because their sin is not, unless their sin is against me directly, then I should not be attacking them for their sin. All right? Now, again, I've said this over and over again. That doesn't mean that I just tell them their sin is okay. All right? But I don't attack them for it. I can make the statement of homosexuality is a sin, adultery is a sin, uh, gluttony is a sin, lying is a sin, without attacking the person <laughs> for what they're doing. Now, they're going to feel like they're attacked. That's beside the point. These guys are literally attacking Job every time they turn around. They're not pointing out that, you know, they, they don't see any sin in his life. They don't even know what the sin is in his life that they're, they're attacking him for. All they know is bad things have happened to him. Therefore, Job must have done something terrible. That's their logic. They have no proof that he did anything wrong. They have nothing that they have seen him do wrong. Nowhere in their conversations have they said, Job, you know, that liars suffer, uh, you know, adulterers suffer. All they said is, bad people suffer. Job, what did you do that you're suffering so bad? And that's been their attack over and over and over again. And Job is basically going, even if I, even if I had sin, the sin is my own problem, not yours. And this is something that is very good theology for us to deal with. When we're, when we're dealing with people, even if we think they deserve what they've got, it's still irrelevant. Our job as Christians is to love them and help them as best we can. Uh, in the world of the religion and the idea of karma, you know, in India, when people are suffering, they don't help each other because they deserve what they got. And if I help them, then I'm blocking their punishment for their bad karma. So th that's the way a lot of religions are. If people are suffering, we don't help them because if I help them, I'm hurting them. That's their logic. This is their attitude toward Job. Job, you know, Obviously, you deserve what you've gotten. If we help you before you've identified and repented, then we're not helping you. Uh, sad logic. Doesn't represent the heart of God. And this is what's important. They, Job's friends do not understand God's heart of love. They don't understand anything about God, really. Uh, they do understand the idea that if you do good things, good things are supposed to happen to you, and bad things, bad things are supposed to happen, but they don't understand the heart of God, and they don't know what's going on in this situation because they don't know God. Because if they knew God, then they would be gentle with Job. And Job keeps telling them, you know, if you were in my place, I would be gentle with you. <laughs> um, and so all of this is going on, and it says in verse 5, if indeed or if truly... You will magnify yourselves against me and plead against my reproach. He goes, you're, you're pleading against what you think I have done. You're magnifying yourself as opposed to me. And this is probably the worst thing that they're doing. You know, saying we are so good that we can judge you, Job, and you are terrible and we are good. They are the epitome of self-righteous individuals. And this is the sad thing. When somebody is in self-righteousness, then they do feel they're better than everybody else. And when somebody has things going wrong, they're, they're ready to just crush them just like they were, just like the Pharisees did, just like the scribes did. They attacked people that did not measure up to their standard of perfection, which isn't God's standard of perfection, but it was their standard of perfection. And here's Job's friends doing the same thing, and Job's chastising him. You know, why are you thinking you're so much better than me? Is what his statement here is saying. You, know, you think that you are better than me? You're exalting yourself and putting me down. And this is the thing about self-righteous people. They have to put others down to show how good they are. 
And if they find somebody who's better than they are, they have to find the flaw in that person so they can drag them down so that they're not looking bad because of that really good person. Self-righteousness does not show love, does not show kindness. And when we are truly righteous, we don't need to be proving that we're righteous because we're standing in God's righteousness and we know it's his righteousness. And I don't have to go, well, just look at me. You know, I didn't, I didn't get mad at that person and I love that person and I helped that person. And you know, just look how good I am and point out all the good things so everybody knows how good I am. That's self-righteousness. And when we look at God's righteousness, you know, we know that there's people who are very righteous and they don't say a word. They just live out their life. And we get to watch them and go, wow, you know, they didn't, they didn't get after that person when they, when they were mean to them. Matter of fact, they even treated them kind. You know, they didn't mention anything about it. We notice true righteousness without it being pointed out. And this is what Job is saying. You go, you are exalting yourself. Verse 6 says, Know now that God hath overthrown me and have compassed me with his net. Now here Job is talking about how he sees things. God is attacking me, is how he's looking at it. And God has circled me about. He does not know the first two chapters, which we know, that it's Satan attacking him, but God has allowed it. All right. But his mind is still, God is doing this to me. And he doesn't understand why God would do it to him. He doesn't fully appreciate that there's a demonic enemy coming against him. And he is struggling because he, he says, I've not done, and again, all of his arguments have been, even if I have done something wrong, I have not done something bad enough to deserve all that this has happened to me. And he goes, I know that God is doing this, but I don't know why and in one side he's got a good point there you know he doesn't have the verse you know for all things work together for good but yet he understands that god is god and that god is in control and so he doesn't understand all of this he goes behold i cry out wrong but i am not heard i cry aloud and there is no judgment so he says i cry out the wrong the injustice God, I'm calling you out. This is unjust. There's not anything that is just in this. And we know what? There wasn't anything just in it. There really wasn't, which is why we know Satan is doing it and not God. If Job had deserved it, then there would be justice. And God could say, yes, I, I did this. But because he's allowed Satan to do this, there is injustice. But it's very interesting because God allowed it to happen. And we don't always understand why God's allowing that to happen. Now, we know that Job is going to be restored at the end. He's going to get, he's going to get the same amount of children back again. So he gets double blessing on his children as well because he had the, the, the nine that died that went to heaven, and he's got nine more uh, to have. So he got double blessed in his family. He just only had half of them at any one time. Uh, but he's going to get all the blessings back. And God is teaching him. Even though he doesn't understand it at this point, God is teaching him and humbling him and teaching him that, you know, you know what, Job, if anybody, if you come across anybody, you know how to treat them. You know, and people looking at him, even to this day, recognize God's blessings. So he's still being used as a lesson to this day. So lots of good came out of his, <laughs> came out of it, but during the time of the suffering, nothing good seemed to be happening. And this is something that I have seen so often when people are in the middle of suffering, all they want to do is gripe and complain and, gar and, and, and gripe and complain some more. This is where Job's at. We've all been there at some point, the more, especially if we don't pay attention to the fact that God is going to do something good and that he's sovereign and he's in control. The more we can hold on to those truths, the easier it is to endure through the hard things. Even when we don't understand it, and I've said this many times, many times I've told God, God, I do not understand how anything good can come out of this, but I trust you. Usually that's after I've gone into a pity party for a while myself. But oftentimes I don't even do that much because I just say, God, I don't understand this, but I know that you've promised it's good, that good will come out of it. And this is where we have to really hold on to the truth of the Word of God.
Now, I'm not saying I do it perfectly every time, but I do tend to do it better than, than most because I truly believe that verse. When bad things happen to me, I'm going, okay, God, I can't wait to see how, what good's going to come out of this, but I don't see any good out of it. But I trust you. And again, I don't do it 100% of the time, but I do it probably more than 50% of the time because I truly believe that verse and I truly believe that God is sovereign and I love the book of Job and taught it many times over the years. Uh, so I understand, even when everything looks horribly wrong, there's something. Now, the problem is, if I'm talking to somebody, I can't tell them what the good is that's going to come out of it either because I sometimes don't know in their life why all the stuff is going wrong. All you can do is cry with that person who's crying and say, if they're willing to hear it, God's got a plan. I don't usually tell them that unless I really understand that they understand the truth. Uh, some of the people in this church, I might try to tell them that in the middle of a trial, if God led me to. But for the most, because I say it so often that I hope people would truly believe it in the middle of the dark, dark trial. But somebody that doesn't listen to this message and everything, no way I'm going to tell them that all things work together for good. They have to believe it. And because I learned, I've learned and learned and learned over the years that if they don't believe it going into the trial, they definitely aren't going to believe it in the trial. And Job does not believe it, in, you know, kind of. We're going to find out in, in certain places that he does. And he goes, he has fenced up my way I cannot pass. He has set darkness in my past. In other words, he's saying, everywhere I look, I'm trapped. I see no light. He is in despair at this moment. And some of us have probably been there in various times in our life where it just seems like everything is wrong. There is no hope in what's going on in my life. This is where Job's at. He doesn't see. He's in the middle of a tunnel and the tunnel is curved and he can't see the exit on, on either side and all he sees is darkness. And he says, and I'm fenced in. I can't even get out if I wanted to get out. This is where he's at right now. And this is what he's telling Bill Dad. You know, you've, you've hammered on me. You've hammered on me. I understand that there's no, no hope. I don't need you to be telling me there's no hope. And he goes, he has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. And this word for stripped is very interesting. It is literally he has flayed. He has flayed my glory, you know, with a whip type. You know, he's, he has skinned him alive, basically, of his glory and his honor. And, you know, this is a very true statement because we know all the stuff he lost. He lost everything that he could possess except for his wife and apparently the house that he lived in because it looks about servants still. So he still has a few household servants. But he's been stripped of all of his animals He's been stripped of his family, and if that wasn't enough, his health was taken away. And he's saying, you know, he has flayed me, me, my, my glory. He has taken the crown of my, from my head, all of his great position. He was the wealthiest man of all the, all the area. He was well-known. He was respected. Now they look at him appalled. How could you lose everything? And these uh, three friends of his and the one younger one, you know, they're just representing when everybody's looking at him going, what did he do? What did Job do that, he, that God is judging him so hard? And, you know, this is something that happens even to this day, and I understand it. You know, you see a homeless person. What did they do to deserve being homeless? Maybe they didn't do anything. Maybe they did. But you know what? Just as Job says, it doesn't matter why. It just is. And we need to be able to understand that they still need help. Uh, now, maybe a little less if they really truly deserve it, but they still need help and comfort. Now, the hard part we have in our day is there's so many people who aren't homeless pretending to be homeless. And that's bizarre. You know, they're out begging for food and money, and then they get in a nice car and drive home. Or they have cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah. Cigarettes and alcohol and, and drugs and all that stuff that, you know, uh, 
And again, we can't be judging that. We just have to be discerning on where we're going to be with it. But he says, I am trapped on all sides. He goes, I don't understand. He doesn't understand that Satan has done all this trapping of him and keeping him in place. Um, he says, he has destroyed me on every side and I am gone and my hope has he removed like a tree. And now he's still blaming God. He's going, he has destroyed or pulled down me on every side. And I am gone and my hope has he removed like a tree. He goes, I have no hope. And if you're ever in a place where you are hopeless, you can understand where he's at. He's looking around saying, I have no way to start. I have no health to start if I wanted to. God is against me, so it doesn't even make any sense for me to go out and do anything. My, my health is gone. And everywhere he looks, he has no way to start, start over. But his health wasn't gone. He'd be, okay, all I need is a few sheep and a few goats, and I'll start all over. You know, I'm a, I'm a successful businessman. I did it once. I'll do it again. Like most businessmen keep saying, you know, uh, I did it once. I'll do it again. I just have to start all over again. But he doesn't have the health and strength to be able to start all over again. He going, I am deadly sick. All I can do is sit here and scratch my, scratch my boils and, and suffer in pain. I cannot go out and, and herd sheep and goats anymore. I cannot go out and take care of my fields. I can't take anything. And I have no hope. And being without hope is a really hard place to be. All right, verse 11. He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and rise up their way against me and encamp around about my tabernacle. So here he's really getting down to the brass tacks and how he's looking at God. He goes, God's wrath is against me. And, you know, one thing, if God's wrath is truly against you, you're in trouble. Now, he doesn't realize it's not God's wrath that's against him, but he's feeling it. And his attitude is, if God didn't want me to go through this, it would not be happening. And on that side, he's true. And because it's happening, it must be God who's doing it. That half of his argument is not true. The first half is, God would not let this happen, and that would be true. But he says, God is the one doing it, which is not true. And we know that it is Satan that is doing the attack. And it says... Uh, he counts me as one of his enemies. Now, again, we know that God's statement was not that Job's an enemy. He said, Job is an upright and perfect man that hates evil. Job's testimony before God is a man of righteousness, a man of holiness. But Job is so far removed from where he's at that he does not recognize all of this. And again, remember, the argument from these friends is prosperity gospel. If you do good, you get blessed. Job believes in the prosperity gospel. We see this all the way through until the very end. He believes in the prosperity gospel. So if he isn't being prospered, then God must be the one not prospering him. This is, is the mentality of the prosperity gospel. He doesn't know what he's done. He doesn't feel like he's done anything worth going through this, but God has to be the one that's blocking him from any prosperity and taking everything away from him. So God is shaking up his theology. And God will do this many times with us. He will test our theology, especially if it isn't true. Is your theology good enough to keep you? Or even if it is true, is you, are you going to believe what you truly believe? And is it going to hold up during the attack? And this is why I've said it so many times, and I do truly believe it. Don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. I love that statement that I, you know, and I don't know if it's original with Chuck Smith, but he's the one that I heard it from. And, but it's a very true statement. God teaches us things during the daylight while it's easy. Then he puts us in the trial at night to say, do you believe what you learned? And that is tough. Job is saying, Job is being trained. Job, you believe in the prosperity gospel. Everything's taken away. Now what do you think? Is your trust in me or is your trust in the blessings that I have given you? And ultimately, this is the problem with the prosperity gospel. Outside the fact that it's not true, but is my trust in God, the giver, 
or is my trust in the stuff that I've been given? And it's so easy to shift our trust from the giver to what is given because we just get used to it. And Job's having to be, who is it that I believe in? What do I believe in? And this is his trial that's going on, and it's a trial that we face frequently. Do I trust God, or do I trust the stuff that I have? And so this is all that's going down, and he goes, God has put his troops against me. They have encamped about my tabernacle or my life, my, my body. So he says, God's very angels are coming against me. This is how he feels because he's going, if God had wanted me, his angels would keep everything away from me. And because all this stuff is happening to me, his angels must be <laughs> doing it. All right, so his focus is wrong, his understanding is wrong, but he is trying to, trying to figure things out. All right, verse 13, he hath put my brethren far from me and my acquaintances are very estranged from me, verily estranged from me. My kinfolks have failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house and my maids count me as a for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I called my servant, and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated her for the children's sake of my own body. Yea, young children despise me. I arose, and they spake, spoke, spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. Now this is really sad when he's saying, everybody who knows me is against me. Now in this statement, he's almost true by the looks of, it, uh, looks of things going on. He goes, he has put or removed my brethren far from me. So all of my close family have been pulled away. And my acquaintances are estranged from me. You know, he's got four of them right there, and they're not being comforting at all. So he's going, everybody I know is far away. Have you ever been in a test from God where it seems like you are all alone? It happens. Part of that is the test. Who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust God, or are we going to trust our feelings? And this is where it becomes critical for us to say, I trust God and his word, no matter what my feelings tell me. Because one thing that usually happens is our feelings lie to us. I am all alone. Well, Job wasn't all alone. He had God at the very least. But he wasn't all alone because he had God. But his feelings were saying, you're all alone. Nobody loves me in that church. Nobody cares for me in that church. Been there, done that myself. You know, many years ago, I was got to be a workaholic and nobody called me. Nobody once said, you know, hey, we've missed you. And boy, did Satan use that against me. You know, I've missed seven, you know, seven weeks in a row and nobody has said a word. Nobody has bothered to call or write a letter. That seven weeks turned into to a year and a half of walking away and saying, nobody cares. Now, I am absolutely sure there were people in that church that cared. I never went back to that particular church. I still have some people that I count as friends in that church, but, you know, I never went back to the church. that church. I ended up moving to a different state before I got back with God. Uh, but I was very much in that same place. God, you've, everybody, no, there's not a person that cares for me at all. I'll just stay and be a workaholic, which was easy because that's my lifestyle. I like a type A driven personality. I like to, I like to work. And nobody cared that I didn't go to church, so we'll go ahead with it. And this is what Job's saying. This says, all my, all my brothers, all my acquaintances are very, truly estranged from me. None of them care about me. None of them are here at my door trying to comfort me and help me. Because they've all just pulled away. He goes, and if that wasn't enough, my kinsfolk have failed or left me. My familiar friends, all the ones that I've known, have ceased to care about me. All right? It's a pretty, pretty sad place. My family doesn't care about me. All my friends don't care about me. You know, and, the, and the four of you that do care about me or, or don't care about me. <laughs> All right? And he's got some kind of a point here that, you know, where is everybody else that live nearby? 
Where's his uncles and his nephews and his cousins and his mom and dad? Maybe, maybe they were dead, we don't know, but he's saying, you know, every, all my family's gone. All my friends are gone. There's nobody who cares enough to come and see how they can help. Now the problem with this, how to help somebody when they're down in the first place is usually they get mad at you for even offering to help sometimes. And it's kind of an interesting place because this happened to me just recently where I'm talking to somebody and going, what can, we, what can we do? I don't know. I don't, you know, I just feel so miserable. God, you know, God's out to get me and, you know, and I don't know why all this stuff's happening. And you're going, well, I don't. How can we help? But they're already so miserable that they don't even know how to ask to help, ask for the help. And that can happen frequently. And it kind of puts us in a place where God, what, what do I, how do I help this person? What do I do? They don't seem to know what they want or what they need, and I <laughs> don't know what to do. And then that drives them farther back from you because they don't know what to do, and they feel bad, and you're not able to tell them what you need, and, and all of this problem that happens. He goes, they that dwell in my house and my maids count me as a stranger or loathsome. <laughs> so he goes, my servants don't want to even be around me because of how bad things are. Uh, and think about this. When his friends first came to him, where'd they find him? In a pile of ashes, scraping his boils with a pot shear. You know, looking miserable. Probably smelling miserable. And his servants, he's saying, none of them want to have anything to do with me. They, they, they treat me as a strange. I am an alien in their sight. I called my servant and he gave me no answer. <laughs> I entreated him with my mouth. He goes, I called my servant and they didn't respond. Well, that's pretty bad when your servants don't come to the call. So he's really into this whole pity party right now. My life is miserable. Nobody cares. And when you get to that point where you say nobody cares, you're in trouble. Because then you'll start doing things that you never would have thought you would ever have done. In my case, walking away from church, not reading the Bible, not praying. For almost a year and a half, two years, to walk away. You know, why? Because I went into a pity party. Nobody cares. I've been serving that church for, for over a year and a half, and nobody cares that I didn't, haven't been there for, for these weeks. We need to be very careful because that pity party can totally destroy us. Now Job, Job is going to turn around a little bit here, but he's still, he's being driven down in this pity party. He goes, my breath is strange to my wife or loathsome to my wife. She did not want to be away from him, around him by his perception anyway. All right, remember, this is all his perception on what's going on. He goes, my own wife thinks I am loathsome. My breath is lo loathsome. Even though I entreated her for the, for the love of the children, for the children's sake of my own body, he goes, he goes, we're married, you know, won't you spend some time with me? And she did not want to have anything to do with him. And, you know, what did she tell him? You know, curse God and die. Maybe by love, maybe by dislike. We don't know. He, he treated it as if it was dislike. She doesn't want to hug me. She doesn't want to kiss me. She doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Now, my friends aren't doing it, my family's not coming, my, my servants aren't coming, and now my wife doesn't want to have anything to do with me. It's a pretty sad point of view that he is looking at. And then he follows it up with, young children despise me. I arose and they spoke against me. So even little children are saying bad things about him, at least, again, from his perspective. And the last one, my inward friends abhorred me and they whom I love are turned against me, are changed, are, turn, are changed against me. So he's saying, everybody that I love is against me. Inward friends? But they're inward. They're the ones that he closest, closest to him. Okay. Close like best friends. friends. Best friends. Yeah. Well, close friends, not necessarily best, but close oh. friends. You know, people, people I counted as close acquaintances. Not, not the ones that were uh, just acquaintances, but my, my friends. Oh. So it's the deeper, deeper meaning of yeah, the term. Not just, okay. 
not just I know that person, but they would be close friends. They would be the ones that I felt that I could go talk to and yeah. would like me, you know. They wouldn't they be the guys who were given him such a bad time. <laughs> Don't know if they were considered as inward friends or not. Okay. All right, these are these were kind of the confidants, confidants, okay. the ones I take into my life. All right, they're, they're the confident, best friends clo is a close, close answer to that. Not necessarily the complete answer to that, but these are people that he feels comfortable around. He thinks that they should be the ones that would actually, him telling them, I haven't done anything wrong, should say, yeah, we truly understand that. We don't know what's going on, Joe, but we still care and love you instead of judging him. And everybody is pulling away from him. Which goes to show you know, how bad he is. And now he's going through the same problems that most rich people have. Am I liked because of the money I have or am I liked because they like me? And this is the problem that when people get wealthy or get famous, all of a sudden they suffer because they got what they thought they wanted, but now they don't know whether people like them because of what they can get from me or the prestige of, of who I am or do they really like me? I am sure that Job was faced with this problem as well. You know, gee, did everybody just like me because they were able, I was able to give good feasts and, and good gifts and now nobody wants to be any part of me? What kind of friends did I have? And so he is again, another, another this is just another suffering he's looking at. Everybody I thought liked me doesn't like me. They're all avoiding me. Now again, it could be just as simple as they don't know what to say or what to do, so they are kind of avoiding him, but not for the reason that he thinks they're avoiding him. They just don't know what to do. And he looks at it saying, well, these are just awful friends. Why, you know, nobody cares about me at all, and, you know, and that's part of the pity party that he's going through because he's saying nobody cares, nobody wants to do anything, nobody, you know, I guess they just wanted when they could get stuff from me, that's why they came. And this is where he's at with it. Now he doesn't say that, but I'm sure just knowing, I've met enough wealthy people to know that when they finally get wealthy and famous, they finally, then they suffer with this whole idea of, do people like me because of me or do they like me because of the stuff they can get? And this is, I'm sure that is part of what Satan is attacking him with. See, you have no friends. Now, you know, God isn't even your friend. Look at all the stuff that he's doing to you. And it's an amazing thing that Satan, who causes our problems, blames our pro those problems on God. And how many times do we buy into the accusation that it's God's fault? Sadly, too many times. And Satan does this all the time. Well, Job believed in Satan, right? How come, I mean, it doesn't seem like he's ever saying, you know, even considering it could be Satan doing it, it's always, he's always blaming God. We don't know how far demonology had gone at this point in time. All right. We do know that he recognized, you know, would have known the creation story where Satan tempted Eve. He would have known the, the evils of man before the flood, but there's not a whole lot in there that says it's Satan doing it. To be able to study demonology or the, or the study of, of demons and Satan, you have to piece together a lot of scriptures throughout, a lot of the scriptures throughout the Bible. How well it was developed. Now, he would have been aware of an enemy. He would have been aware of an accuser. But this is really the first time we've seen the accuser in action behind the scenes, and Job didn't get that section of the book. He knows that he tempted Eve, and that was the whole problem with sin and, and depravity. His theology is based on blessings for doing right, curses for doing wrong, without an opponent in here. The only time we see Satan in the book of Job is at the beginning. So we don't know what Job's understanding of the demonic attacks were. Right. Over time, we get to see more and more developing of an accuser who tempts, you know, keeps tempting people. And we really don't see much in the demon world and the accuser until the gospel when, when Satan really comes out and attacks Jesus. And Jesus calls him out. So we do know that they exist. We know that they're there, but we don't see a lot of them. So we don't know fully how well he understands the tempter. 
all right? Yeah. He could have understood him a lot better than we do. I don't know. He doesn't seem to, we don't see him in the book of Job other than chapter one and chapter two, uh, when he stands before God. And, you know, we don't know much about him until we get to Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, and then we get to get to see more about him, and then Jesus really lays him out uh, who he is and what he does. So we don't know. He could have had a better understanding than we know, but he doesn't seem to understand this. His, his life has been built around reaping and sowing. You know, you get what you deserve, and uh, if you have bad things happening, there's no, there's no enemy that's responsible. It's because you deserved it. And this is the problem that Job is having. And this is what God is trying to show Job. Job, you do not understand the world and what's going on on it. And so toward the end of it, he's going to show him, you know, probably been revealed to him what, what happened before the start of the story. So, Job, now let me tell you about this first part of it so that you know what was going on here. When you kept blaming me, it wasn't me. And then we get a big development of who the enemy is. Again, where's Job at this time? I don't know. We don't see Satan being mentioned anywhere outside of chapter 1 and chapter 2. So it doesn't appear to be a very large study on demons. All right, uh, let's see, where were we? My friends have poured me. All right, verse 20. My bones cleave to my skin and to my flesh. I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. They have pity on me. Have pity on me, O my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my flesh worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. But you shall say, Why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? Be you afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. All right, so here is Job's final soliloquy on this, this section. He says, My bones cleave to my skin and my flesh. I have escaped with the skin of my teeth. The first part basically says I am wasting away. I am wasting away, my muscle has been, been atrophied, and I am just skin and bones, and I look a mess. Uh, plain and simple. Now, the, the second part of this is something that I looked it up because it didn't make a whole lot of... I, I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Nobody knows what that means. Very thin skin. Well... When I first read of it, I go, you know, I, you know, we escaped with the skin by the skin of our teeth, you know, or you know, by, by the bare inches. He's barely holding on. One of them made a very interesting statement that he was still allowed to speak, be able to speak, and I think that was a very interesting one. And the guy made the point, and I don't remember which of the ones he goes. The point was that Satan was trying to get Job to curse God. So the last thing he could do was take Job's power of speech away. No matter how bad Job felt, he had to make sure Job could speak. Yeah, because he wanted that curse to come from, from Job. Because remember, that was what he said. If you take his stuff away, he'll curse you. Well, God, if you take you know, his health away, he will curse you. Job never cursed God. Now, he had trouble... He had trouble with everything. He came very close, but he never cursed God. I don't know. This one's kind of a very interesting. It could be the same thing by the skin of our teeth, you know, where we go just barely, barely alive. We don't know. Nobody really knows this statement of it uh, and what this meant. But he is in extreme pressure going on. He goes, have pity or favor or grace on me. Have pity on me. Oh, my friends. 
Yeah. He, and this time, now he's looking at his three friends and saying, can't you just have a little bit of favor? Can't you just be kind? Because they have not been kind. Outside of that week when they sat there and cried with him because they were so shocked at what they saw, they have not had any favor on him in any of the words that they have spoken to him. And Job is pleading with them, can't you just have a little favor, a little grace, a little pity? You know, can't you just feel sorry for where I am rather than trying to, to judge me? And he goes, for the hand of God has touched me. Now again, he's blaming the wrong person for what's going on. But again, that's his understanding. I've been doing good. I've offered the sacrifices. Good things are supposed to be happening to me. Therefore, they're not happening to me. God himself is the one who is put his hand on me to give me a hard time. And it's half truth. God allowed <laughs> these things to happen. All right. And then it goes, why do you persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? He goes, you guys are doing, you guys have put yourselves in God's place to attack me. Again, going back to have some pity on me. Just be kind. And if I really do deserve this and it's between me and God, why are you attacking me? And that really is the problem of the self-righteous person that attacks somebody who's down is they're playing God in their life. And this is what Job's saying. He goes, why are you acting like God? Why are you doing this? How come you're not happy with just what I'm going through and bringing comfort to me? And these are valid arguments that Job is making. You, know, you guys are supposed to be my friends. You're supposed to care about me. Why aren't you at least being kind you know, or why aren't you having a little bit of pity a little bit of favor toward me a little bit of grace and this is the most important thing for us first to understand God's grace toward us and his grace is so wonderful because he does not give us what we deserve he gives us what we don't deserve his grace he gives us everything that we don't deserve and he's telling them, can't you just give me a little bit of favor? Even if you don't think I deserve it. You're not God. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what the plan is. Just be kind. And this is the words to us. We need to be kind one to another. Not just one to another, but to all that we come across. Because it is so easy to attack so easy to judge. These men were judging. And they don't know the whole thing. They don't know the first two chapters either. You know, none of the characters in this book, other than God and Satan, know the first two chapters. The rest of them are all judging what they see. Job is judging, I didn't deserve all this bad stuff. His friends are judging, Job, you had to have done something, even though you're not admitting it, you had to have done something because this doesn't happen to good people. They're all judging, including Job. And there's no mercy, no, no kindness. Then he gets something very interesting here. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Well, they did. <laughs> he got his answer. <laughs> and his book is still being read 4,500 years later. Or his story, still being read 4,500 years later. Uh, and he's just pleading, you know, I just want my story told. <laughs> you know, maybe somebody will understand my story, but I just want it told. <laughs> oh, that they were graven or carved with an iron pen or a diamond-tipped pen on a rock forever. Now, written in a book, but I don't know that it was written on, <laughs> on tablets or a statue or whatever. But this is his statement. I just want my story told. I want somebody to see what's going on. Maybe because he understood that usually in a book there's this little prelude that tells you why things happen. And he's going, maybe he's saying, I would love to read it myself. I would love to know what's going on so that I know the story. And this is one of the things I like about reading books. Because you get, you get told what people are thinking. 
in the book as well. You don't see it in movies. When you're in a movie, you don't get the, the thoughts unless they do some really crazy you know, thought processes and dream sequences and everything. But in a book, they, say, they will often say, he said this thinking this, or he was thinking this, you know, and you, you, get, you get the whole thing of it. And you get the stage laid before in, in writing that you don't get in experience. And Job's saying, I just wish this was all in a book. Then maybe I'd be able to go back to read it and, <laughs> and see what's going on. And, uh, you know, and, I want it, and I want it in a book, oh, a printed book. I don't want it graved, in a, graved on granite so that it can't be taken away again. Little did he know that when he made that statement, it was going to happen, most of it. <laughs> Goes, for I know my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. Now, this is a very interesting statement. And this is one that people look at that and say this is so advanced theology that there is no way that Job could have known it, which is why they try to date his book way, way past when it is, because he goes, I know my Redeemer lives. The, my Savior, my God, lives. And that he shall stand in the latter day. That he will stand on the earth in the latter day. This is talking about the millennial kingdom. Job is talking about the millennial kingdom 4,500 years early. And people will say, there's no way he can know this. There is no way he can actually have that confidence that his Redeemer lives and that his Redeemer will reign on the earth at some future date. This is powerful theology that he just lays in a single sentence. My God lives. This is before God meets with Moses and says, my, my name is I am. Long before that period of time. And Job is saying, my Redeemer is alive. I know that he lives and that he will rule on this earth. Powerful stuff. That there is no way that we would be able to think that he should know this kind of teaching. And yet, he says it very clearly. My Redeemer lives and shall stand in the latter day upon this earth. My God lives and he is going to reign on this world. He had some indication. He probably knew the Genesis story. He knew that God created. He met with Adam and Eve every evening. And he's going, there's a time coming when God is going to restore everything and be back on this earth. Maybe I didn't really understand Jesus coming and dying for sins or anything, but he definitely understood that he will stand on the earth at the end days. Goes, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet my f in my flesh I will see God. He understood resurrection. He goes, and my flesh is going to be destroyed. It's going to be worm-eaten and it's going to de deteriorate. He goes, yet in my flesh I will see God. Resurrection was being taught all the way back at Job's day. He understood that there would be a resurrection, that you would die, your body would disappear, and yet you'd get your body back to stand before God. Because that's exactly what he says. In my flesh I will see God. Even though my body has been eaten by the worms and been destroyed, I will still see God in my body. Again, this is a advanced theological statement that Job is making. Job knew God. He understood God in a very deep way, which is why he's able to trust God. He says, my Redeemer, my Savior lives. I don't understand anything about what's going on, but my Redeemer lives. Even if I shall die and the worms eat my body, I will still stand before him in my flesh at some point in time. What kind of confidence does he have? He has the perfect confidence just like we do. 
I'm going to die, I'm going to go stand before God, and then eventually I'm going to get my, my resurrected body, and then I get to stand before him in, the flesh, in a fleshly body as well. What confidence Job had because he started to understand a little bit about God. He's struggling, granted, and so would we if we were in his place. Maybe we would have fallen a lot worse than he did. But he's struggling, but he says, my Redeemer lives, and I'm, you know, even if I die, I'm still going to stand before him in a glorified redeemed, resurrected body. Beautiful statement that he has on this. He goes, Whom I shall see for myself, with my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Again, resurrection. I am going to, get, I am going to see God. I'm going to see him with my very own eyes, and not another set of eyes. And I shall behold him even if my reins or my inner parts, my kidneys and my intestines are consumed within me. All right? So he's saying, I'm going to lose my entire body, but God's going to give me my body, my body back. And I am going to see him with my very own eyes. And I'm going to stand before him and be able to rejoice. And this is a very strong statement of resurrection. And people will go, well, they didn't understand resurrection. Well, Job sure understood resurrection. Noah understood resurrection, you know, because he talked about the whole thing about being redeemed. You know, so resurrection has been a long-term message to the church and to the people. And Job understands it. No matter what happens to me, I get to stand before God in my, in my new body when I'm resurrected. That is confidence. He has the same confidence that we have more developed in, in our day and age because I've said this so many times. I am not worried about death because to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord and then it, when we return we'll have our new glorified bodies so that we'll have the resurrection, you know, the rapture will get our glorified bodies and we'll come back with perfect bodies that get to talk to God and they're our own eyes, our own, our own body. Job understood this. This is how he has his confidence in God, even though he doesn't understand what's going on. He has his confidence that even if he slays me, yet will I trust him because he's going to give me another body and I'm going to get to stand before him. And maybe at that time he'll explain why I went through everything. Yeah. You know, and I kind of have the same feeling. If I need to know when I get to heaven, God will tell me why I went through all the bad things I went through. The longer I'm walking with him, the less likely I think I care about why I went through things because I know that God is good and when I get to heaven, I'll know that he was good and I don't need to see what, what he did to make it happen. He might still show it, I don't know. But at that time, I don't think I'm going to care because when we get to heaven, the greatest thing for us, we get to stare in the face of Jesus who died for our sins and loved us and cared for us on this world. And I don't think I'm going to be thinking about much of anything for the first two or three millennia as I'm looking at Jesus. You know, oh, man, look at those scars that you went through. You did that for me? Oh, thank you. And just being in, in awe of what he did for us. The only imperfection, man-made imperfections in heaven are the scars on Jesus' body because he did it for us. And it's, I can't imagine how there'll be no tears in heaven, just tears of joy when you see what he did it would be amazing. And we look at him and go, wow, you went through all of that for me. Which is why when I teach anything about the resurrection, uh, the, the crucifixion and resurrection, I really paint how much Jesus went through. During communion, which we do you know, once a month, paint the cost of our salvation because it really is something we have to understand because I have met so many people that think salvation is cheap didn't cost God anything to, to save us <laughs> cost him an awful lot and if we forget the cost of our salvation then we really don't understand what's going on and we don't understand and we take it so lightly our, the salvation we have is not cheap the grace that God is able to give us is not cheap. It cost him his life. And it cost him all the punishment and the pain to get it for us.
And the last statement, he goes in here, he goes, but you should say or speak, why persecute we him, seeing that the root of the matter is found in me? So in other words, he's saying, why are you attacking me when you have the same problems in you? And you know, this is really a true statement. How many times do people attack in others what they see in themselves? You know, many times parents have trouble with their kids because they see in their kids their own faults. And it drives them mad because they thought they were trying to keep it from their, you know, from their kids or they, or they really know the problems the kids are going to have because of the problems. And then they strike out at the kids sometimes because of them being like them. And we do it frequently. Usually what irritates us most in others is our own problems that we see in them. And this is what Job is telling them. He goes, you know, aren't you afraid to be attacking me when the same problems are living inside you? I'm telling you that I was good and not deserving this, and you're telling me you're good and don't deserve what's going to happen. Just be careful. It might happen to you. And he goes, be afraid of the sword of wrath, for the sword of wrath brings punishment. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. He's going, you have problems in your own life. Quit judging. This very much is reminiscent of how Jesus said, how can you take the splinter out of your brother's eyes when you have a log in your own eye? Very reminiscent of this. He's going, you have the same problem. You're judging me and you've got the same problem. It's not quite as poetic and funny as Jesus is, but he said, you've got the same problem. How can you be attacking me so strongly and you have the same problems in your life? And you know, it is really easy for us to do just that. When we see our problem in our life and other people, we judge it usually pretty harshly. Mostly because it scares us. Because we're seeing what it does to somebody else and it kind of scares us, or we know where it's going to, especially if it's a family member, or a child or something, doing the same thing that we have a problem with, and we know all the trials and tribulations we've had about it, and we want to try to beat it out of them so that they don't have to do all the problems that we dealt with. And our motivation may be right. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that it is, but it, we might at least think we're doing a good thing. But we need to be careful, because it is so easy to judge. And this is saying, you guys should, aren't you afraid to be judging when you have that same problem? And he also understands the whole idea of reaping what you sow when you judge. You're going, you're judging me? Huh? Just wait. You get what you sow. You're judging me and, and you think you're so good? Just wait. And we're going to find that the only reason they did not get what they deserved is because God told Job to pray for them. Because God was ready to destroy these friends. Or at least put them through the ringer that they were accusing Job of being bad for. They are bad, and God was saying, they deserve it, Job. I'm going to, we're going to send all these things unless you pray for them. And I love the fact that Job prayed for them. He could have said, oh, good, I get to... You know, I get to watch them go through the ringer. I'll be a little nicer to them, but I just can't wait for them to go through this, but that wasn't his heart. Job really was a righteous man that hated evil. Even if they deserved it, he hated the idea that they were going to have to suffer the evil. And this is from his perspective. The theology that he has that holds him tight is that God is alive. God cares and he's going to give me a resurrected body. Even if he destroys this body and this whole life is over, I'm going to get a new body and I get to still worship God. That is a great truth for us to hold on to. No matter what goes on in our life, no matter what happens, we'll have a resurrected body that gets to worship God in perfection. And this is an understanding that Job has. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. Lord, help us to stay strong by focusing on you in the future of heaven, not this world. And we just thank you for all that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. 
God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.